We get started this morning with our next lesson on the Reformers. Today, we are going to be discussing the life of Ulrich Zwingli. He was a Swiss Reformer, scholar, military chaplain, and obviously a preacher. So I'm excited to uh, teach on the life of this man and uh, glean some encouragement from from this brief study. Let's pray first. Lord God, we thank you so much for this time together to gather and to learn about this man. May we find encouragement from his accomplishments. May we imitate his faith in whatever ways it imitated Christ. May we stand on his shoulders and continue to reform the precious church. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Ulrich Zwingli. Here we go. Here's our agenda this morning. As always, we'll discuss his early life briefly, his work in ministry primarily, and a brief comment about his legacy. And if there's time, which I'm sure there will be because I don't have that many slides this morning, we can discuss uh, whatever questions or or input you all might have. So, his early life. He was born in 1484 in a little town in Switzerland called Wildhaus. Wildhaus, probably. That's how you pronounce it in German. 40 miles from Zurich. Zurich is um, still a city of, of beauty and lots of history. I know a missionary or two that's working there. And I would love to go there someday since I've been to Germany twice. That would be my next stop, Lord willing. And uh, Ulrich had a, had a father who worked his way up to become a chief magistrate in the local government. And so therefore he had the means to send his young son to school. Ulrich received an excellent education. By the age of 10, he would be what we would say at the level of a typical high school student. And at the ripe young age of 14, he enrolled at the University of Vienna and two years later at the University of Basel. And the University of Basel is the oldest uh, university in Switzerland, and it's still a very prestigious school. So he received his bachelor's at the age of 20, master's at the age of 22, and it was in college at the university where he was exposed to the spiritual abuse of the Roman Catholic Church for the first time. It was through his influence, through this influence, that would just sort of plant the seed and just to give him a little bit of exposure to what was going on behind closed doors, what was going on with regard to a lot of things that Luther had discovered. But he went on to become a Roman Catholic priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and he was able to purchase a post at a church in Glarus, his boyhood, his boyhood boyhood church, and 
you know, we, we, we think about that and we, we think that's kind of weird, right? That's, that's not good. <laughs> no, like, post, like, he, he, he bought his position as a priest. Yeah, like, this is my post, you know. You're, you were thinking literal. Okay, all right. Not too literal. His post is in his position of ministry. So, I guess maybe I'm using a military term. It's post. Like, I will never abandon my post is one of the general orders of a soldier. So, post. He purchased his position as a priest in his boyhood church. Sorry for that confusion. And that was common at the time. Because, again, remember how the church and the state were were sort of married together. And uh, if you had the money and the education, then you would... um, be able to buy your your spiritual role in in the church. So, thankfully, um, though for probably most men that was not good because there was no spiritual qualification, right? So corrupt people could get what they wanted with money. But Zwingli was not corrupt. During his 10-year priesthood, he served as a chaplain, a military chaplain to Swiss mercenaries. And this was also common in, in, uh, in, in Zwingli's day. A mercenary, right, it's, it's, it's a soldier for hire. So it would kind of be what we would, we would call maybe a, a civilian contractor who today uh, is employed by a third-party Agency and they are sent to Iraq, Afghanistan to provide security for the Iraqis and to maybe help augment the troops. Back then, the Roman Catholic Church would pay Swiss soldiers to come and fight in their religious political wars. And so Zwingli volunteered his services to serve as a field chaplain. And it's interesting, obviously, to me because I have been in the chaplaincy in the military and, and I understand how, how, how vital their role is in the field, especially to a Roman Catholic. Why, why, would, why would having a field chaplain be, be, be more important for a Roman Catholic soldier compared to a Protestant soldier? Anybody? Last rites. That's right. Because if, if you're if you're on the if you're in the practice in the Catholic Church and that's still that way today is 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 that your last rites is kind of like one of the, your you know your last check the block um, before you pass on to the next life and if you don't have your last rites well that's 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 a problem so Zwingli witnessed many many killings as you do in war right. He, he witnessed other Swiss men killing Swiss men on foreign soil for foreign rulers. And after, after seeing this for a little while, Zwingli decided that it wasn't right. And, and he, he, he began to preach against it. He came to deplore those evils of war, and he, became, and he started to preach against the warmongery of Rome. Because, again, keep in mind 
that the reason why there was so so much fighting um, backed by the Catholic Church is because the Catholic Pope was in cahoots with the, with the emperor. They weren't separate. So that's why there were a lot of religious campaigns in, in the medieval era. And particularly the Battle of Marignano in 1515 took, took 10,000 Swiss lives. And here is a, uh, a, a artistic depiction of what that was like. Um, you can just imagine... You know, I'm sure you've all seen movies where, you know, there's just this this hand-to-hand combat brutality. You know, it's hard for us to comprehend. And, um, you know, no matter what what period in history, war is horrible, right? It's it's uh, it's it's one of those things that you just can't even begin to imagine unless you've been there. And uh, I, I can't imagine, you know, going toe to toe with with uh, an open field with another man, and we just start slicing each other up, you know. And the last man standing wins. It's it's just I'm sure you've had similar thoughts of how 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 horrific it must have been to to be to be a soldier in this time. And uh, not only that, but feeling like that you have the burden of having to administer last rites to every single dying soldier. So Zwingli, Zwingli uh, saw a lot of this. And he didn't become a hardcore pacifist. But he, he did, he did um, begin to speak out against this, uh, this, this issue of mercenary of, of this practice of Swiss soldiers being mercenaries. So he started to preach against that, and then he also obtained a, a, a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament and devoured it. He was, Erasmus was, was, the, was the first one to publish, uh, mass-produce a Greek New Testament. And so... so uh, he got a hold of this of this Bible, and that's when, of course, his thinking started to change radically. He would later write, before anyone in the area ever had heard of Luther, I began to preach the gospel of Christ in 1516. I started preaching the gospel before I had even heard Luther's name. Luther, whose name I did not know for at least another two years, had definitely not instructed me. I followed the Holy Scripture alone. So you see, this is where we start to start to develop our doctrine of sola scriptura, right? Those those five solas that we you know that we love and esteem so much, they that those those five statements didn't really become well known and popular until well after the Reformation period started. So we can see here that that the Scripture alone started to um, become become the practice, become the reformer's conviction. So in 1516, he served, he left that post, that position, and served as a priest at a 
Benedictine monastery for two years. And while he was there, since it was a, a, a very, you know, pretty, pretty well-populated and, and transient monastery, his reputation and influence increased as he preached the word. And of course, just like it would be for you, if you began to devour the scripture, you are going to take on an anti-Roman tone, whether you know it or not. Because if you begin to preach justification by faith alone, it contradicts clearly what Rome has always taught, among other things. So in December 1518, because he had become uh, fairly well-known and developed a reputation for being a Bible preacher, he secured for himself a position at the Greek cathedral in Zurich. This is a picture of it. It still stands today. And it, it's one of the most um, popular and, and uh, w- uh, most visited tourist attractions in, in, in Zurich. As you can see, it has the typical uh, medieval uh, architecture of the time. I don't know if it's still used um, as, as an operating church today, but, but it's still very much in its original condition. So on January 1st, 1519, on his 35th birthday, he began a series of expository sermons that were drawn out of the Greek text. And keep in mind that at this time in church history, expository preaching was non-existent. Right? Right? And so this, this, this practice of expository preaching had never really been heard in, in, in centuries. You could go back to, to, to John Chrysostom in, in, the, in, the, you know, in, in the patristic era, and, and you could see that, that there was something pretty close to what we would consider expository preaching then. But as the Roman Catholic Church changed and eventually became clearly apostate, there's, there's debate on what year that the Roman Catholic Church visibly and obviously became apostate. But for the first time in many years, hundreds of years, uh, expository preaching began to, um, to be heard in, in Zurich. A couple years later, he wrote his theses, 67 theses, in which he rejected many medieval beliefs. Of course... The um, clerical celibacy, the mass, priestly mediation. He began to see these things as unbiblical due to his own study of the Greek text. 1524, he took another step of reform and married a widow named Anna Reinhardt. She would, she would be known as the Apostolic Dorcas from the book of Acts. And I read a, um, a pretty somewhat lengthy article published by um, a, a reform group. I can't remember what it was, but it, it was a very, you know, endearing article about Zwingli's wife. 
And he made a point in the article that, you know, we, we talk about these reformers, but most of them also had wives that were, that were behind them, helping them and serving them and enabling them. And, and, and they filled um, vital roles in the lives of these men. And they owe, we owe them our gratitude as well. Anna became a widow because her husband, um, who was kind of a prominent figure, um, died over sickness and wounds sustained in battle. And the story that I read um, mentioned that uh, her ch- one of her one of her sons was you know just just a handsome bright young boy, and he would attract attention. And he, he, he not only was impressive because he was a handsome kid, but his, his intellect and academic ability was, was superior. And so that also um, got the attention of Ulrich Zwingli. Not only was this, this woman, Anna, a widowed, and she was godly, she was beautiful, but he, he really had pity on this young boy. And so this boy... Um, Found a somewhat of a a, um, a a father in Ulrich Zwingli, and and so that's what kind of that's what God used to bring Anna and Ulrich together. Uh, was was this young orphan, and uh, it really touched me because, as you know, um, he he had a biblical view of children, right? Just like Luther, they all loved children, they all took time. And invested in children. They had children. And they saw that as something that was godly and good. And I think just seeing that historical trend is also a slap in our face in our generation. Where it's typically in churches, children are kind of looked down upon. And they're annoying. And they're loud. And we only have one or two kids, maybe, if we feel like it. That's not the practice that we see in these reformers. They are our legacy. They are the highest calling um, of a parent. Children come first. Everything else comes second. The only job in the scripture that says that women will be saved by is childbearing. And so scripture has a high view of parenthood. And that's why these men were so were so. Tenderized by children. Having, having, having children has softened me more than anything else in my life. And you say, wow, dude, I, I, I'd be scared to see what you were like before kids. And, uh, and you would be right to say that. Having a little girl, especially, has softened me and taught me more compassion and patience than any church, any, any fellow Christian could. Okay, I'll get off that hobby horse for now. But I just wanted to share that snippet with you that um, it, was, it, was, it, it was the, 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 the compassion that Ulrich had for a young orphan that brought him to his wife. And they, they enjoyed a long, um, godly, and blissful marriage. And she was esteemed by everybody. And it reminds me of Proverbs 31. She was a Proverbs 31 woman. 
and uh, she was very, as you can imagine, devastated and grief-stricken by by Ulrich's death. And I'm going to share a quote um, about that later. But by 1525, after a few years of preaching the word verse by verse, the Reformation began to have great traction in Zurich. The Mass was officially abolished. The Scripture was read and preached in the language of the people. The entire congregation, not merely the clergy, received communion. The minister ditched the expensive flashy robes and wore a simple black lecture robe. So if you see Protestants in history, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, you guys know Martin Lloyd-Jones is? You'll see a lot of pictures of him wearing just a black plain robe. Presbyterians wear robes. Other, other uh, liturgical and confessional denominations, the preacher wears a robe. And for a long time, I thought it was stupid. I thought it was too Catholic-esque. But now I understand that it's a really good idea. In fact, I wouldn't have a problem with wearing one. In fact, this, this is like the Baptist robe, right? Baptists like to wear suits. So this is kind of like our robe. I wear the same blue or tan jacket every Sunday, and it's not, you know, I don't do it to attract attention. I do it so that my attire is boring. Because the robe, the black plain robe, signified the office. And so what, what made the office and the act of preaching special was not the man. It was the man serving as a conduit for the truth. And so that black robe signified that it's no longer Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking. That's why I hate when preachers call themselves speakers. We're not speakers. We're not talkers. We're heralds. And heralds deliver a message from the king. And so having a, a robe, a black robe, was just a symbol of the office. The black robe signified that, hey, it's no longer the individual bringing his own unique, cool, and hip style to the platform. It was the black robe signified, take your attention off the man. Hear what he's speaking. Hear what he's preaching. So, for its worth, that's why a lot of Confessional Protestants wear black robes because men like Zwingli started doing that in place of the elaborate, fancy, fine, um, handcrafted, expensive robes that priests wear. The veneration of Mary and the saints were forbidden. The sales of indulgences were banned and prayers for the dead were stopped. So, as the Reformation began to spread, and, and as um, Zwingli's doctrine started to take, take root in Zurich, what else was going on at the same time? The German, Ref- the German Reformation was in full swing. 
1529, in an attempt to establish unity among the reformers, to establish cohesion with the German and Swiss reformers, um, there was a meeting convened with Luther and his contemporaries and Ulrich and his contemporaries. And so they drafted a document with 15 points of doctrine on it. And all but one they came to an agreement on. And it was the issue of the Lord's Supper. So in the sense of communion, Zwingli is the first Baptist. Because we view communion as a memorial, right? Do this in remembrance of me. We don't believe that the, blood, the, the, the bread and the wine literally becomes Christ, right? That's transubstantiation. That's the Roman Catholic viewpoint. But Luther didn't take the moral view either. Luther took the view of co-substantiation, which means that, that, that the elements contain the presence of Christ. So it doesn't become Christ, but the presence of Christ is there. So that's kind of the middle ground between transubstantiation and the memorial view. And Lutherans still hold that view today. So here is an artistic depiction of that meeting. The Marburg Colloquy, October 1529. And you could see, again, I'm not an expert, but you could see that's Melanchthon. That's, I think that's you know, Luther's right-hand man. I think that's Luther. Um, you know, seeing he's, he's trying to argue with, with folks, and, and, you know, they got quite the audience. And then they, they, they just could not come to terms. They could not come to an agreement on the Lord's Supper. And so they did not unite. As we've said before, as you've seen in my um, teaching before, Luther could be very hard-headed. Um, he could also be very sweet and hospitable. And charitable, but when it came to certain points of theology, he was very bullheaded and very stubborn and unwilling to compromise. And um, they walked away, and Luther said, Perhaps God has blinded them, speaking of, of those who take the moral view. So, so that issue alone prohibited them from reaching um, uh, a point of understanding. So, in 1531, years later, the Catholics came again. Zurich had to defend itself against five invading Catholic cantons, which is like regions. And again, Zwingli was compelled into service as a field chaplain. So he donned his armor. He armed himself with a battle axe, and he went out to fight alongside his his comrades. But on that on that on that day, October 11th, he was severely wounded. I read that a spear had found his neck, so he was wounded, bleeding out. And when they found him, they killed him. He was 47 years old. 
and it's about to get a little heavier. Not only was he found and killed on the spot, that wasn't enough for this heretic. So they took his body, they quartered him, hacked him to pieces, and burned his remains, and they mixed his ashes with pig entrails. And then they were scattered. We're starting to see another trend in the lives of these reformers, aren't we? Not only are they highly educated and skilled in academics and language and preaching, not only do they, do they love their wives and their children, but... A lot of them met their end with a very painful and gruesome death, and their remains were burned. Here's a, another artistic rendition of Ulrich's death. You can see off to the left a, uh, a banner of Mary. And. Uh, you know, and there you see a soldier uh, off to his left with a sword in hand pointing to it. And uh, it's, he's, he's demanding that, 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 that Ulrich recant his view of, of, of the mother. So, obviously he didn't. And he was, he was executed there on the battlefield. So remember the, the article I told you I read about. Um, article I read that was about his wife, and so I, w- I want to share a a quote from that article with you. On the awful 11th of October, 1531, for on the 9th, the news came that the army of the Catholic cantons was approaching. Hastily, a little army was gathered at Zurich against them. Zwingli was ordered to go along with them as chaplain. On the Charity Square, just in front of the parsonage. you guys know what a parsonage is? Anybody not know what a parsonage is? Huh? Yeah, it's a home that the church owned that the pastor lived in. Yeah. So a part, a part of the soldiers formed so as to depart. His wife came forth to bid him goodbye. Unable to repress her feelings, she burst into tears. Her children joining her in weeping, clinging in the meanwhile to their father's garment so as to detain him, if possible, from danger. The hour is come, he says to her, that separates us. Let it be so. The Lord wills. He then gave her a parting embrace. Her fears almost robbed her of her speech. But she said, we shall see each other again if the Lord will. His will be done. And what will you bring back when you come? Zwingli's prompt response was, blessing after dark night. These were his last words to her, and they remained as a sacred comfort to her in all her life. So just imagine that. I mean, imagine putting... imagine. You're in his wife's shoes. 
You know that the Catholic army is coming to to force you to deconvert or die. And your husband is going off to war. And you're pretty pretty sure that he's not coming back. Not only that, but this is your second husband. Now she's going to have not three kids, but however many kids that they had together. I don't know how many they had together, but human emotion obviously is is very difficult to uh, to control in that type of moment. But I still think it's amazing how they both responded at that point. They understood the sovereignty of God. They understood that if it's His will for me to leave, then it's let it be. But His response, blessing after the dark night, He wasn't talking about the literal dark night. What was he talking about? He was talking the dark night of the sinful earth. The dark night of sin and death and war and disease and damning doctrines. In fact, another one of the Reformation slogans was post-tenebrous lux, which means after darkness, light. After the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church preaching false gospels, the light of the true gospel came forth. And so, so I think that just, that's, just, that's just a testament to Zwingli's um, maturity and sound theology. And that sound theology and maturity did not come from his religiosity, right? It came from his simple preaching of the word. And his wife demonstrated maturity as well that came from the preaching of the word. So that's a brief, um, very brief, lesson on the life of, of Oruk Zwingli. He was imperfect and infallible. In fact, he was very much against the Anabaptists who believed in baptism by immersion. But he reformed the church in Zurich. And with Luther, he, he laid the way for the reformers to follow. And the statute you see here, um, it's, it's, it's a statue that stands today in, in Zurich. And you can see he is, he is pictured there with a sword to symbolize his patriotism, his duties in the military, his services as a chaplain, his experience fighting for his country, and also a Bible. So his legacy is that he was a loyal patriot and a true preacher of God's word.
I think that's pretty cool. Because I can, I can relate to them in that sense. So, again, I'm not an expert in, in, in this area. Um, there's much more to learn about this man. But my time in the study is limited, and our time today is limited. So, I, I'd encourage you guys to study more about, about this man and, and, and what he did, what he didn't do. So if, uh, if you have any questions, I will do my best to answer them. Or if you have something you would like to share that would be profitable for everyone else, please, uh, please take the opportunity. And Aaron will hand you a mic. Is it on? Is it on? Yeah. What's interesting is shortly after this, early in the 1530s, the Catholic Church was forced to... Um, start the Council of Trent. Yep. And it's because of the reformers and I can see what he was doing at that church was making the Catholics think about what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyone else? Any questions about Zwingli? Yeah, I have heard that the uh, disagreement on communion was it was pretty sharp. Mm-hmm. That they that that pr- actually prevented uh, Zwingli and Luther from being amu- uh, amiable. Yeah, is that true? Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Zwingli believed in the memorial. Yeah. Luther didn't. Luther did not. No, Luther was very staunch on the co-substantiation view, which is simply that the elements, the bread and the wine, contain in and around, in some mystical way, the presence of Christ. And that, and that, dif- <laughs> what's that? And that differs um, from transubstantiation, right? Because somehow through the ministry, ministry of the priest, it... it it transforms literally into the body and blood of Jesus to be sacrificed. And then the memorial view existed. It's in memorial. The memorial view, which is what the typical historic Baptistic view is, is is uh, it's it's a symbol. So it's a the 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 bread represents the body of Christ, which was broken for us, and and the wine represents the blood, and. Yeah, I, I think it's simple. Um, it, it's really, to me, maybe it's because I'm so simple-minded. Uh, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance. And so there is no command. There is nothing in Scripture that, that indicates there is some um, super spiritual, mystical thing going on. A lot, like Roman Catholics will, will quote, uh, what is it, in John that says, um, if, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, yeah, John six, they'll quote that. Um, but that's not talking about communion. Um, what are what are some other passages? Um, he, he's talking about um, in, in, a, in, in a spiritual sense. It, it, the context has nothing to do with the act because because the Passover had not happened yet. And so the, the Lord's Supper is just a replacement of, 
the you know the Passover. The just like the Passover did not um, accomplish any spiritual, um, you know, uh, you know, act or whatever. It, it was just to remember the Holy Spirit passing over the houses, right? That that had the blood on the door. So, in a sense, we 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 just remember the sacrifice of Christ um, through the symbols. Yeah, uh, I wanted to add in John 6, Jesus defines eating his flesh and drinking his blood as receiving him and trusting in him. Yeah. And then um, Wayne Grudem uh, talks about this. He, he's contrasting con, uh, trans, cons, substantiation with the memorial view. And the main issue is if, you, if, if you're believing in any sense that the bread and the wine that you're consuming, if, it, if it's anything other than a memorial, if, if, Jesus, if, there's, if Jesus' body is in any way involved, then that is detracting from the once completed sacrifice that Christ make. In some sense, whether partially or, or more than partially, you are offering up another sacrifice if you are consuming his body and blood again. Yes. Maybe one more. Anybody have one more question? I thought child baptism was an issue also. Uh, it, it, it was not between Luther and Zwingli. They agreed on that. Um, there's, there was an, another group of radical reformers that came on the scene called the Anabaptists. And, and they, they're the ones that that denied infant baptism, and they openly denied it, and they were persecuted for it. And so that's that's one of the things that you know we 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 have to learn um, too is that that these reformers were not perfect. They were they were a people of their of their age and their culture as well. And uh, to be to to have to to not baptize an infant uh, was was considered gross error in, in that time. So um, that's that that is that is a a black stain on the reputation of some of these some of these men. So well, I think I should go ahead and close in prayer. And, uh, and get ready for worship. Thank you, Father, again for this time together. Thank you that you have saved us by grace through faith. Thank you, Father, for giving us this history. May we stand on the shoulders of these men who were brave enough and courageous enough to preach the truth and risk their lives for it. May we learn from their mistakes and not squabble over secondary issues and fight and persecute one another for issues that are not primary. May we be primarily concerned for the gospel and the scripture. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word to guide us and direct us and to keep us in the straight path and 
not allow us to be deceived by Roman Gospels and Eastern Gospels or whatever. Thank you so much, Lord, for your grace and mercy. I pray for, I pray for our worship service uh, coming up. I pray that they'll be glorifying to you. And I pray for your word to, to sanctify us today. In Jesus' name, amen.